You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, please take your Bible and turn with me to my favorite psalm, Psalm 63. Psalm 63. We're on page 449, if you're following along in one of our church Bibles. But we're looking at Psalm 63 this morning, and I mentioned that Psalm 63 is perhaps my favorite because it is my go-to psalm when I have a hard time, when I'm struggling in life. There are certain passages of Scripture that you're drawn to like a magnet. For me, that is Psalm 63. This is the first time I have ever preached it. I doubt it'll be my last because Psalm 63 means so much to me personally. If you're going through a hard time today, then I'm glad that you're here, because this text is for you. If on the other hand, you're having the time of your life, I'm still glad you're here today, because this text is for you. David was a man of extreme highs and extreme lows, making him one of the most relatable men in the Bible. And today we're gonna see why scripture refers to him as a man after God's own heart. So please follow along as I read Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Before we begin our new series on indestructible joy in the book of Philippians, I want to set the table this morning with this Old Testament psalm. Philippians is full of several themes and practical living for the Christian life, and perhaps the most central theme we find in Philippians is joy. Joy. The Greek word for joy appears more than a dozen times there in those four little chapters. And all throughout the New Testament, we see this call this command to have joy in the midst of our circumstances, in the heat of trial, in the pain of persecution, in the struggle of loss, and in the threat of death. Regardless of our crisis, we are commanded to possess this supernatural, this spirit-empowered joy that transcends all of our trouble. And we know that this joy is available to us as part of the package of having abundant new life in Christ, 
We understand that as New Testament saints. However, most of us still struggle with joy, especially whenever the rubber hits the road and the trials of life just keep getting hotter and hotter and hotter. It's true, most of us long for but fail to find that peace, that inner peace and and comfort and contentment when we need it the most. My guess is that many of you are enduring intense hardships and difficulty right now. Because in life, there's more than enough pain to go around. David knew a thing or two about trial and trouble. Psalm 63 was written during one of the darkest periods of his life. Look back at that introductory heading there. A a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness or the desert of Judah. Now, there are only two periods of his life that this could possibly be referring to. Either he wrote this early in his life when he was running from Saul, or later in his life when he was running from his son, Absalom. Both of these events fit the circumstances described there in verse 9, where someone is seeking to destroy his life. But we know that this psalm was written during the later episode, while he was fleeing from Absalom, because he refers to himself as king there in verse 11. And while he was promised the kingship as a boy, he he wasn't king yet, and he never referred to himself as the king until after Saul had already been moved out of the picture. So he writes this psalm in the desert of Judah while running for his very life from his own son, Absalom. So the question is, why? Why? Why is he there? What are the events that drive this setting, and how did David find himself in such a desolate place? We might be tempted to quickly glance over the heading, jump into the text, and mold this psalm to our own circumstances with little regard for the context, but we hurt ourselves if we do that. Because Psalm 63 was not written in a vacuum, Psalm 63 is tied directly to a set of real circumstances in a real man's life. So what are those circumstances? And why is David on the run, and why does he say some of the things that he says here? in this psalm? Well, you don't need to turn there, but the answers to those questions are found in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. And I'll try to summarize the events for you here as quickly as I can. Absalom had just killed his older brother, and he did that so he would be next in line for the throne. However, patience was not one of Absalom's virtues because he immediately began plotting to come up with a scheme to kick dad out of his throne while he was still alive so he could then take over. He didn't want to wait for it. So he came up with this brilliantly wicked conspiracy. He would rise up early in the morning, day after day, and he would wait by the road just outside of the gate leading to Jerusalem. And as the men of the different tribes of Israel would pass by, And many of them would bring disputes with them. They would bring different complaints and and arguments with one another. And as they would bring those disputes or or their cases to the king's court, he would shout out to them. And he would say, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? How's it going, friend? He would strike up a conversation. And after doing that, he would listen to their dispute, agree with them, tickle their ears, and build a little bit of rapport. He would then inform them that David's court is just too busy to hear their grievance. And then he would complain about how the current administration doesn't really care about them. Now he really doesn't, he really doesn't put his heart where the people are. 
He would say things like, oh, if I were judge in the land, I would stand in your corner. I would be on your side. I would judge with equity and kindness and goodness, and I would rule in your favor. Only if I were in charge. It's too bad the king is too busy to get down here with his people and really take care of things. He doesn't care about you at all. After doing this over and over again for four years, 2 Samuel 15, 6 says, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That's a phrase, isn't it? He stole the hearts of of the men of Israel. So he not only turned them against David, he was not only successful in doing that, he, he turned them towards himself. He won their support. He earned their affections. He warmed their hearts. And in the end, he got what he wanted. Absalom takes 200 men to the city of Hebron, which is where David had become king 35 years earlier. It's no coincidence that he would go there to put feet to his conspiracy. And once at Hebron, he stands up and he publicly makes this declaration. He says, I am now the king of Israel. I am the king. And at that moment, secret messengers had already been dispersed all throughout the 12 tribes. And as soon as he makes this declaration, they hear a trumpet blast. And then at the same time, they all stand up and they all scream the same thing. They say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Absalom is the king. Well, now David has a problem, a real problem. Absalom then slowly marches 20 miles back to Jerusalem, slowly picking up more and more soldiers as he goes. Chapter 15, verse 12 says, And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Word gets back to David that Absalom and a now sizable army are on their way. A sizable army of his own people are on their way, and they're getting closer and closer to killing him. Even his closest friend and trusted advisor, Ahithophel, has fallen into this conspiracy. David has no choice but to run for his life. He has to pack up what little he can, leave everything else behind, and flee for the desert. And yet, even in the midst of all that, he still has joy. He still has joy, even when all is lost. At the beginning of verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied. At the end of verse 5, he says, my soul will praise you with joyful lips. At the end of verse 7, he says, I will sing for joy. In verse 11, the king shall rejoice. Even Old Testament saints Those who were saved by faith in God and hope in the Messiah to come long before the cross of Calvary, even then, indestructible joy was available for the man or woman of faith. Even then, they could have this joy that has been given to us as a part of our new abundant life in Christ. So how do we, this side of the cross, how do we, how can we even begin to possibly obey this command? to be joyful. How do we tap into this, this inner peace, this comfort, this contentment, the warmth of the love of God? How do we possibly get there? How do we persevere when the storms of life beat against the walls of our heart? Well, the answer is simple, folks. 
It's a desperate love for God. A desperate love for God. When God's glory and his faithfulness fill our vision and his love wins the battle for your affections, something supernatural happens. Your perspective changes, your attitude changes, your weakness changes. And that is why we find ourselves in Psalm 63 today. These 11 verses tell us how to have joy in the darkest of circumstances by revealing to us what a desperate love for God looks like. So this morning we are going to look at three marks of a desperate love for God. Three marks of a desperate love for God. First of all, those who desperately love God are starving for God. Starving for God. And this is clearly seen in the first four verses. From the very beginning, he cries out, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is spiritually ravenous. And he shows us that those who are really starving with a desperate love for God, for more of God in the thick of their trouble, will do two things. Two things here. They must prioritize God, verses 1 and 2, and they must praise God, verses 3 and 4. Prioritize and praise. He says, oh God, you are my God. With, with longing in his voice, he cries out to his God, knowing that, that God is his and that he is God's. He says, earnestly I seek you. This word earnestly, it means to break in. And it, it's related to the noun for early dawn, which is why some of the earlier translations may say early instead of earnestly here. But the idea is the same. And that is that as, as a child of God, you want to break through. You want to break in like the dawn. You want to earnestly seek him. You want to make him your top priority, giving him first spot, first place in your heart, in your day, and in your trouble. When life is falling apart, you prioritize God. One commentator observes, anyone who truly longs for God, longs for him now. Now. There's a sense of immediacy here, of urgency. Earnestly, I will seek you. Notice that David says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. My soul is that immaterial part of man. My desires, my cravings, my passions. And my flesh, that material part, my body, my stewardship, my life. In other words, all of me wants all of you, God. Every part of me, seen and unseen, material and immaterial, every bit of myself needs every bit of you. My God is what I long for. He is water for my thirsty soul. He is food for my fainting body. He is all that I need. When all is lost and I need something. The word for fainting here, it it carries a sense of becoming pale or gray or weak-eyed. It means to become dark. David is saying, my spiritual longing is so deep, even my body is feeling the effects. I am starving both spiritually and physically for my God. Finishing verse 1, he says, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So David draws from his surroundings as he writes this. 
as he is exiled in the desert of Judah, most of, of what he sees around him is barren. This is one of the most barren, barren places on earth. I mean, there, there is nothing growing here. There is no life, just death all around him in every direction. And he pulls from that to provide this poetic background for the condition of his soul. A weary land is a barren land, devoid of life, desolate, harsh, empty. And this is where David is right now. And this is where some of you are right now. And it begs the question, where is God in your list of priorities when all is lost? I mean, King David has lost everything. He's lost his people, his power, his popularity. He's lost it all. He has nothing left. His own son is hunting him down like an animal to have him killed. He's tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty, and yet the first words to fall off of his pen are, Oh God, my God. Oh God, my God. He is starving for God. For most of us, if we're honest, our craving is not for God when things go south. We don't want God. If we're going to be completely honest here and transparent, what do we want? We want our circumstances to change. Isn't that true? And when we do crave God, do we crave him for the right reasons? Do we want him for who he is? Or do we want him for what he can provide to us? For what he can give us? Because maybe God will give us that relief that we want so badly. Perhaps he will give us our chief desire, which is for our circumstance to change. And so we pray, God, change my situation. My God, you are my God. Change it. Make it better, oh God. But notice that that is not where David starts here. That's not where we should start either. He doesn't cry out for a change in circumstances. He cries out for his God. Now to put this into perspective, some of us in this room have it pretty bad. And in no way am I trying to diminish your pain this morning. That is not my goal. But I would bring this to your attention, that none of us, myself included, have it as bad as David did when he wrote this. None of us do. Unless your son has driven you from your home, taken everything you have away from you, and is trying to physically kill you, you don't have it this bad. None of us do. And yet this Old Testament saint, he puts us to shame with his desperate love for God, which means more to him than life itself. Friend, do you love God like this? When you look into this scripture, when you look into this passage, when, when you read these words, do you see yourself? Do you love God this much? Do you long for him, starve for him like this? Do you desire all of him with all that you are? And I'm not looking for an amen this morning, but I'll take an honest probably not from someone. Because if that's the case, I have to ask you, what will it take to develop this desire? What will it take? Are you willing to earnestly seek God's face through study, meditation, and prayer? Are you willing to make him your first priority, no matter how dark, dry, or barren your soul might be? David goes on in verse two to say, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. 
This sanctuary was a holy place set aside for the people to appear before the Lord and worship him. And and we understand and we know, even from reading history, from looking at other sections here in the Bible, we know that they wouldn't actually see God, but they would see his power and glory expressed in the praises of his people. They were witnesses to the powerful and glorious things that God had done. And that is what David remembers as he faces death in the desert of his soul. He looks back and he fuels his present praise with praises from the past. Transitioning seamlessly then into verses 3 and 4 where he says, Because of your steadfast love, because it is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands, which was a common Jewish practice, a common expression of praise back then, to lift your hands in adoration to the Lord. Those who desperately love God prioritize God, and they praise God even in their pain. David prays, your hesed, your unchanging covenant faithfulness and love is better than my life. Life, as good and as bad as it is, it will change and it will fluctuate and it will be good today, bad tomorrow, good again, terrible for a long stretch of time, great for a while, and then bad again. Life changes. Life is ever fluctuating. It is never constant. And eventually it will come to an end. But the loyal love of God never will. Ever. It never changes, and it will never die. David says, it's better than life. For as long as I live, however long that might be, my lips will praise you, I will bless you, and in your name I will lift my hands. Christian, do you hunger and thirst for God this way? Again, I ask you, are you starving for him when life leaves you empty? Are you so preoccupied with his power, his glory, and his steadfast love that your heart can't help but just gush over with praise and worship for your God who loves you so much? If not, then that might be an indicator that your heart finds satisfaction in something else. You see, when we feast and feast on the desires of the flesh, the things of the world, the pleasures of life, it should not surprise us when our hunger for God is lacking. It shouldn't surprise us when we have a difficult time turning our affections on him. Because it all begins with seeing God and seeking God when the chips are down. Earnestly, we should search after him in his word, prayerfully praise him and starve for more of him. That's the first mark Friends, that's the first mark of those who desperately love God. They starve for him. They yearn for him. They earnestly seek him. They want more of him. They're never completely satisfied until they get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. I remember hearing a story years ago about Rockefeller. You remember he was one of the richest men in the world. In fact, if you were to do the math, I remember reading somewhere that his, his billions, because he was the first man to ever reach beyond the billion mark, his billions in today's standards would make Bill Gates look like a child. I mean, he was a rich, rich man. And I remember one time he was asked, 
how much more money do you need to get until you'll be satisfied? And many of you know his answer. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Is that how you feel about God? Is that how you feel about him? Are you starving for more and more and more of God? Those who desperately love the Lord are starving for him. Number two, those who desperately love God are satisfied in God. Satisfied in God and God alone. Verses five through eight, he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. How is it that David could possibly be so joyful and so full of praise after losing everything? This praise with the joyful lips expression that we find here in the text, it could accurately be translated with lips of a ringing cry. I mean, this is a full throat scream. This is a yell for joy. And it comes from this overwhelming feast that satisfies the famished soul. David moves from fainting to feasting. His soul is completely satisfied, like like that feeling you get after an excellent meal. When I was in seminary, a group of us had this tradition. We would finish each semester with a heavenly experience called Korean barbecue. For those of you who have not yet experienced this full-bellied satisfaction that I am about to describe, let me explain. You sit down at this table with a built-in grill right there in the very center. You have to grill it yourself. Nobody comes and does it for you. But it is glorious. It is beautiful. A whole host of delicious eggs, kimchi, and sauces are spread out before you. And, And one of your Korean friends places the order because you're not Korean and you don't want to embarrass yourself. I I made that mistake one time, and there's a whole story. I won't go into it this morning, but let's just say there's a small Korean congregation down in southern Indiana who refers to me and knows me as uh, Pastor Cheddar Bacon, okay? Uh, I I doubt any of them will ever come up here and visit, but if they ever do, and they're like, ah, Pastor Cheddar Bacon, now you know, okay? Uh, So one of your Korean friends places the order, because you don't want to embarrass yourself, you're not Korean, and for the next hour or two, messengers from the Lord will just keep bringing you this never-ending supply of delicious meats. It is amazing, and there's nothing like it. If you haven't experienced Korean barbecue yet, don't, don't worry, because I'm sure they'll have it in the millennial kingdom. It is... It is an experience. And I bring that up because it was a big deal to us at the end of each semester, and we ate more than enough. But not once, driving back to the school with a car full of guys after enjoying so much food, never once did I ever suggest, hey guys, there's a McDonald's. Let's pull over and enjoy something off the the dollar menu. Or there's an In-N-Out. I could really go for a milkshake right now. Never crossed my mind. Why? Because I was satisfied. Because there was no room left, believe it or not, in this belly. I was full. I didn't need anything else, especially fast food. And that is exactly what David is saying here. He's remembering back to the time when he enjoyed the finest foods in the king's palace. And he remembers how full and satisfied he was physically before finding himself here in the desert of Judah. And he says, my soul... 
My inner man is just as satisfied with God. I don't need anything else. Why would I? Why would I search for satisfaction in an order of chicken McNuggets? When I have Korean barbecue, I have God. He is the source of my satisfaction. He is the one who fills my empty heart. And all I have and all that I need is God. Beloved, does this register with you today? Is God your source of satisfaction? Does he fill your heart like nothing else can? Are you content, gratified, and fulfilled in him? Or perhaps you're thinking this morning, you know, Hans, I hear what you're saying, and I can see that. I'm looking at it on the page, and I can see that this is exactly how I should feel. This is the right perspective. And I realize that this is, this is what I should do. This is the right attitude I should have. I affirm that with a positive head nod and a quiet amen. However, but, but Hans, I, I really just wish I had a better job. I really just wish I had a better marriage. I really wish I had a, a better relationship with my kids. I, I just, I, I really wish I had better friends. I wish I had more time, more money, more good memories. I wish my circumstances were different, Hans. Listen, the steadfast, anchored love of God is better. I promise you, it is better than all of that. So much better. His love is better than life, and only his love can fill you up to satisfaction. If you look to him, if you behold his power and his glory, if you earnestly seek him, thirst for him, faint for him, and then praise him, bless him, and cling to him, then your soul will be satisfied, I promise you. Because God will be your God, and he will fill your emptiness. Verse 6 says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the washes of the night. Here we see David late at night, lying on his bed, unable to sleep. These watches of the night refer to the three shifts throughout the dark where a different guard would rotate on duty to watch over the camp. And David is just lying there. His mind is wandering. He wishes he could sleep, but he can't. And as he's laying there, one guard finishes his shift, and the next one comes on to perform his rounds. And then that guard finishes his shift, and then the next guard comes on to perform his rounds, and then that guard finishes his shift, and so forth. And this just keeps going on all throughout the night. But notice, David, he doesn't just lay there and mull over his situation. He doesn't worry about tomorrow like it might be his last day on earth. Instead, he focuses on what? He focuses on God. He disciplines his mind towards God. This word remember here, it means to meditate. And in this case, to consider the things that God has already said and done. The parallel word here means the, the meditate, it, it means to utter or to mumble. And so this is likely describing what David does here in the middle of the night. He remembers God's faithfulness and he, he utters those thoughts under his breath and he praises the Lord joyfully as a result. Verse 7 summarizes his meditations for us. He says, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. His prayerful meditation produces joyful praise. 
a praise fueled by the significant benefit of having God's steadfast love, and that is God's help. God's help. God doesn't help those he opposes. God doesn't help those who are opposed to him. God helps those who belong to him, who are, who are covered by the steadfast love of his, this loyal love. And God does for David what David can't do for himself. Because without God's help, his servant would waste away in the desert. There is no hope for David without God's help. Without divine help, he would have been lion food as a boy. He would have been a giant's trophy as a young man. He would have been an insane king's victory as an adult. But as David looks back and he remembers his life, as he remembers and meditates on what God has already done for him and how he has proved himself faithfully over and over and over again to provide for him, to protect him, to help him, and how he received that from God, he can't help himself in that moment but sing for joy. He has to, despite the, the dire circumstances, despite the emotional baggage and the pain that is weighing on him in this moment. He can't help but joyfully praise God as he remembers those things. This expression, the shadow of God's wings, it's a poetic image of God's protection. I mean, obviously God does not have physical wings. But the picture is that of a bird covering their young to provide warmth, comfort, and protection. David is saying, when I look back at times of trial, you have always been there, Lord, helping me, protecting me. And looking around this morning, I see a few gray hairs here. I've acquired a few of my own since I've been here. No reflection on you guys. (laughs) It just happens with age, right? We acquire more gray Well, those of you who have walked with the Lord for a long time, you can relate to verse 7, can't you? I'm sure you can. God has been your help. He has covered you with his wings. As you look back over your life thus far, God has been faithful. He has brought you here today. And God has not finished with any of us yet. And those memories should cause us to sing for joy. Finally, verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Notice these reciprocal ideas. I cling, God holds. The word cling here means to stick to, is in glue. It it expresses loyalty back to God. David says, I don't only follow you, God, I'm stuck to you. I'm glued to you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will not let you go. My, My soul clings to you, O Lord. But ultimately, it is God's grip on us that matters, isn't it? Lefties, I hate to break the news to you, but God is right-handed. It's right there in the text. No, we know that that's not what David is getting at when he talks about God's right hand here. We know that it's an anthropomorphic expression of his unsurpassed power. There is more strength, friends, in God's little finger than the center of the sun. There is more strength in the tip of his fingernail than we will ever, ever experience in a thousand lifetimes. I mean, think about it. If God is so powerful, imagine what his right arm can do. 
I mean, at the end of all things, the Lord Jesus, how is he going to vanquish his enemies? What's he going to do? Is he going to break a sweat? No, he's just going to open his mouth and speak. That's how powerful he is. Seems somewhat anticlimactic whenever we read about it until we think about just how powerful God is and how powerless we are. He won't even break the smallest droplet of sweat. That's how much power God has. Again, how much power do you think he contains in his right hand? No, it is I who clings to God, but it is God who must hold me fast. That is why Paul is able to ask the question, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, your God is a powerful protector and his steadfast love is better than life. Is your soul satisfied in him? Or is your joy entwined with your ever-changing circumstance? Unchanging joy can only be found in an unchanging God. And I hope you get that this morning. Unchanging joy is only found in one place, and that is in an unchanging God. He is the only true source of joy and satisfaction. Listen, if your heart is anchored to the steadfast love of God, your joy becomes untouchable. You can say like Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, in all our affliction, and believe me, Paul had a few, I am overflowing with joy. Those who desperately love God are starving for God and they are satisfied in God. Before we leave this center section of the psalm, I have to admit, I got a little carried away here, and you'll notice you have some blanks there in your outline. I completely forgot about them. So let me just help you by summarizing this section, okay? Here they are. If you are truly satisfied in God, then you are, first of all, pleased in God. That's verse 5. Preoccupied with God in verse 6. And finally, protected by God in verses 7 and 8. Okay? First of all, pleased in God, verse 5. Preoccupied with God, verse 6. And finally, protected by God in verse 7 and 8. Hopefully that helps you, some of you. Those of you who are like myself and it would drive you crazy. I hope you have some relief this morning. (laughs) Poor King David. Poor King David. For a man who has every right by human standards to self-implode and spiral into depression, he sure has a lot to say about God, doesn't he? It's no wonder, despite all his bonehead blunders, David was still a man after God's own heart. Finally, bringing it all together to a proper conclusion, we see that those who desperately love God are sure of God. They're sure of God. Look at the last three verses there. He says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. 
They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now you say, what in the world, Hans? This was a good psalm until we got to the end. I mean, what is he talking about? How does this fit with the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, I thought you just said that David was a man after God's heart. Shouldn't he turn the other cheek or something? This sounds spiteful, what he writes here at the end. Well, let's, let's walk through the text a little before throwing this poor man under the bus. He says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. So notice here that he is the one who is being hunted. He's not the hunter. David is not the one out there hunting down others to destroy their lives. No, he's saying that ruthless men led by his own son are seeking to destroy his life. He's being hunted. But rather, they are the ones that are going to die. They will go down into the depths of the earth, not him. And he adds, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be apportioned for jackals. And this is the part that makes us uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, we get the love for God and we get the longing and desperation, but why all of the graphic language all of a sudden? What's this about jackals? And ugh. Well, let's turn for a moment to Deuteronomy 28. Flip over to Deuteronomy 28. And let's look at what God says here in the Torah. Deuteronomy 28. It's important for us to remember that David's Bible consisted of the first five books of the Old Testament. The book of the law, the Torah. And in Deuteronomy 28, here's what God has to say, starting in verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, that's what we're reading right now, book of Deuteronomy here, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So that's a threat. That's a divine threat. If you don't do all of these things, then you are going to be cursed. These judgments are going to come down upon you hard. Now skip down to verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And get this, in your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beast of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. In Psalm 63, verse 10, David is not being spiteful. He's being biblical. He is just stating the facts. He's praying back to God what God has already said he would do to those who disobey him, to those who would go after him, who would raise up a hand against God's anointed. He's not being spiteful here. In fact, when his son Absalom actually does die, David is not happy about it. How does he respond? He's overcome with grief. 2 Samuel 18.33 says, And the king was deeply moved when he heard the news, and he went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David didn't gloat 
over the destruction of the wicked. Even after several years of betrayal, conspiracies, and the threat of murder, David still loved his son. He's not writing this out of spite. He's not even writing this out of anger. He's not gloating. This isn't a black eye on an otherwise beautiful psalm. This is still a beautiful psalm. He is simply being biblical. He is simply saying, I know the end because I've read the story. Because I am so sure of God. I am so certain that God will do what he says he will do. I know for a fact that there will be a judgment for this. He knows. He knows that God will not be mocked. And that God will always stand by his word. When he says they shall be given over, this is a passive verb, meaning that it is God who is performing the action. He is the one who will determine the outcome and remain true to his promises. David is so sure of God, so much so that he could confidently then write verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. He refers to himself by his rightful title, the title that God gave him as king. And again, he rejoices in God. He says, all who swear by this God shall exult or glory or praise. So long as God is the object of our faith, our love, and our affections, we too will be lifted up in the wings of praise. And he concludes with a statement of fact, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Whoever came up with that Famous axiom, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That person was an idiot. (laughs) That is so not true. Life and death are contained in the power of the tongue. David is running for his very life here. This could be his last night on earth. And yet, he ends this emotional psalm looking forward to the day when emotional pain caused by words would stop. He says one day their flapping gums are going to be silenced. And again, passive verb here, by God. Concerning this final thought, Spurgeon adds, and the sooner the better. If shame will not do it, nor fear, nor reason, then let them be stopped by the sexton's shovel full of earth. See the difference between the mouth that praises God and the mouth that forges lies. The first shall never be stopped, but shall sing on forever. The second shall be made speechless at the bar of God. Friend, I hope for your sake, you have a desperate love for God. His steadfast love is better than life, and it culminated in the ultimate crowning climax at the cross where Jesus, the sinless Savior, the Son of God, took upon himself the justified wrath of a holy God against all sinners who would repent and put their faith and trust in him. We all deserve an infinite punishment for our crimes against an infinitely perfect God. And yet, whosoever comes to deny themselves, pick up their crosses daily and follow him, they will be saved. So if you want this gift this peace, this joy, and this God, then I encourage you, friend, reach out to myself or another Christian as soon as this message is done. 
Reach out to us and ask us to explain to you in detail the gospel because I'm speaking for all of us here who are men and women of faith. We want nothing more than to see you move from death to life. We want to see you have this peace, this joy, and this love. Well, last year, I came across a military history book by Michael Jones titled Leningrad, State of Siege. For those of you not familiar with the events of Leningrad, about halfway through World War II, Hitler decided rather than destroy the city of Leningrad, Russia, he would set a barricade around it and cut off all supply routes in and out of the city. On September 22, 1941, Hitler issued the following command. He said, quote, All offers of surrender from Leningrad must be rejected. In this struggle for survival, we have no interest in keeping even a proportion of the city's population alive, end quote. And so German high command did everything they could to eradicate the city's residents through starvation. Tragically, they were rather successful. By the time the 900-day siege had ended in January 1944, approximately 1.2 million people had died. The book itself is gut-wrenching at times with stories of suffering and survival in the face of human cruelty. At one point in the book, Jones tells the story of a young 18-year-old girl, Alina Martilla, who was a gifted artist. Like everyone else, she was forced into manual labor, but she didn't want her talents to go to waste, so she enrolled in Leningrad's last functioning art academy. There, her professor gave her an interesting assignment. He He gave her this task. He told her to walk around the streets of the city and sketch honest pictures of people suffering. He told her, we must preserve this for humanity. Future generations must be warned of the absolute horror of war. And so Martilla began wandering all over town with her sketchbook, which in and of itself was dangerous. The Nazis would frequently bomb the area And while their targets were typically the city's food supply, she would still find herself occasionally huddled together with strangers in a nearby bomb shelter. Capturing one of these episodes in his book, Jones writes this. He says, The German bombing raid seemed to go on forever, leaving people counting the explosions and hoping desperately that the deafening noise would end. As the shelter reverberated and shook, everyone inside it became more and more frightened. All of a sudden, one of the old men got out his violin and began to play. At first, he was just tuning his instrument, trying out the sound, and then abruptly, he conjured up the most beautiful melody. Martilla was utterly entranced, and she recaptured the moment for her diary. She wrote, There are explosions all around us, and he is playing the violin as if he is leading us to safety. Everyone calmed down, and she added, The terror was somehow less powerful. It had lost its grip on us. It was outside us now. And inside, we had our music. And everyone felt its power. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. As the bombs fall all around us and the walls shake with the threat of death, Outside there is chaos, but inside there is peace and joy, as our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christian, no matter how bad it gets, do not let your circumstance 
dictate or destroy your joy. When the bombs fall, find your music in God. Starve after him. Earnestly seek him. Hunger and thirst for him. Remember the past and praise him. Satisfy yourself in him. Discipline your thoughts towards him. Run to him for help. Cling to him as he lifts you up. And strengthen your resolve in him. Be sure of his promises. Confidently rely on God. Trust in him and swear by him alone. I'm speaking to you this morning, not the church. I'm speaking to you. Do you have a desperate love for God? Too often we turn elsewhere and we shake with our circumstances. If we're honest, we don't want God, we want out, myself included. And I'll admit, there are times when I look at Psalm 63, when I turn to this beautiful, glorious passage of scripture, and I pray, God, this isn't me. This isn't me. I'm not here, but this is where I want to be. This is where I want to be. God, forgive me for focusing on everyone and everything but you. Please, Lord, make me hungry, make me satisfied, and make me confident in you alone. Those who desperately love God have discovered the secret to indestructible joy. And they say, come what may, come what may, we have our music and we have our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for making this joy available. Thank you for being an unchanging God who loves us, for being our God. Thank you for the promises that we do have in Scripture, that we can be certain, that we can be sure and confident in you and in everything that you have written in this book, everything that you have provided for us, this truth, this gospel. Lord, thank you. Lord, we know that we are so unworthy of it. We know that we ourselves are not above reproach. We know that living within each and every one of us is a heart of wickedness, of deceit, of lies. But Lord, we know that our mouths will not be stopped, that we will go on singing your praise joyfully forever because of what you have accomplished and what you have done for us. Because you uphold us, God, by the power of your right hand. Because you have loved us so much to send your son to die for us on our behalf to accept the full penalty for our sins, to die and rise again and ascend to your side and make intercession for us day and night. God, we are so thankful, so thankful. Lord, I pray for the people here this morning who are hurting, who the circumstances of life have shaken them up to the very core. God, I pray that their heart would be filled with music. I pray that they would find joy and satisfaction, that they would starve after you, that they would have a holy hunger and a desire for you. And I pray that they would find satisfaction in you and you alone, not in the pleasures of life, not in, not in the things of this world, but in you. God, give them that. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us because life is hard. 
because we don't know what tomorrow brings. But Lord, we know that we are yours and that you are ours. God, give us strength. Give us wisdom. Give us help, Lord. You are our help. And we know that your loving kindness, your steadfast, anchored love, your loyal love, that is better than life. God, I pray that we never forget these things, that we never forget these truths. And I pray that like a magnet, we would be drawn back to Psalm 63 when life gets hard and that you would continue to bless and encourage your people. Hold us close, God. Hold us fast in the days ahead. And we love you and we give you so much praise with joyful lips this morning. In your name, amen.